Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. There are a few golden eras of auto racing, and the early 60s are among them. Three years of pure innovation, adding horsepower and speed, improving aerodynamics and tire composition, tweaking fuel formulas and engine design, hardly any rules or regulations to get in your way. And now imagine watching as that very same innovation crashes, burns, not just in the flames, into a giant fireball, an impenetrable screen of flames and black smoke. A crash so big it killed two people, halting a one million person event and almost killed the sport of racing dead in its tracks. That's what happened at the Indianapolis 500 in 1964. This particular year, the Indy 500 was riding high. The race hadn't had a casualty for five years, and there was an estimated crowd of over one million fans. And in the post-war era, motorsport was more popular than ever. But on May 30th, 1964, everything changed. One of the worst crashes in Indy history. A crash so bad it stopped the race, Something that had never happened before. Today on Pass Gas, 1964 Indy 500. What made it one of the most awful days in racing history? Who was to blame for the two casualties? And ultimately, what did the tragedy lead to in terms of the Indy 500 and racing in general? We're giving you the whole story of the year they red flagged the Indy 500. So light up your cigarette and don't buckle your seatbelt as your car doesn't have one. It's 1964 and we're hitting the most famous oval in the world. The UFOs of the ground are called race cars. Yes, they are. <laughs> Very good. Good segue. This is Pass Gas. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by my two other hosts, James uh, Hoppus Pumphrey over here. Don't leave me all alone. And uh, Joe Kardashian Weber. No, Barker. Barker. <laughs> yeah. I was then, just going uh, between bits. Nolan DeLong Sykes. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, do you know, have you ever heard the explanation of why UFOs look weird in our atmosphere? Why they can just go in straight lines and then like switch? No, but I will pay you $50 to explain it to me right now. Okay. So have you ever heard of like the fourth dimension hypercube uh, theory? Okay. I think we missed like five steps. Uh, so, okay. Third dimension <laughs> is X, Y, Z axis, right? Right. Okay. So if you add a fourth dimension, our brains are not capable of comprehending it when fourth dimension objects move in three dimensional worlds they look like they're going in weird lines because they're Hmm. they're going in between dimensions so that's one of the theories of why spaceships look like they can just like go one way and then stop right away and go the other way that's like a a thing where it's like yeah and then all of a sudden it's just like yeah i'll show you the video because it explains it a lot better it's cool I've always understood, though, that the I've always understood this always that uh, the fourth <laughs> dimension was a baby. Is, yeah. <laughs> since I was a baby, I always knew that the fourth dimension was time, though. How does how does that factor well, into it? It's I mean, it's like uh, the Tesseract is the fourth dimension, which is the hypercube. And right. that's like a cube inside of a cube. Um, and it just trying to explain it is like breaking my brain right now so i'm gonna have to hit that cbd pen before i dive into this it sounds like (laughs) anyway this is a car podcast not a kardashian extraterrestrial podcast as much as i would like to do one of those that'd be sick hey why haven't the kardashians done anything with cars yet well joe there's that famous episode of uh keeping up with the kardashians where uh kim gets her first bentley if you haven't seen that one and then it just it just becomes a whole thing a whole she gets to her do. first Bentley, and then she goes to Del Taco, and then she cries because she totally shits <laughs> her pants. <laughs> that classic episode. Yeah, that classic episode. Chris Jenner and Brody Jenner both like shit <laughs> their pants too in the back, <laughs> and they just fucking all shit their pants. It's terrible. <laughs> cool. The sixties. Yeah, the sixties was a new era in motorsport. Many of the people interested in racing were World War II vets, craving an adrenaline rush. Most of these drivers had day jobs and raced on nights and weekends. As more and more people became interested in cars and racing, smaller racetracks, known as bull rings, typically less than half a mile long dirt tracks, started popping up all over the country. Uh, There's a few in Slow County, where I'm from, Santa Santa Maria Speedway. There was one, actually, in Atascadero. There was a short dirt oval. Uh, It got paved over, though. Uh, Anyway. This provided a space for all these new hobbyists to try their hand at racing. And the goal for most everyone became the Indy 500, the one oval to rule them all. Even in the 60s, making it to the Indy 500 was a tall order. In the years before, drivers trying to make it to the big race would travel the country looking for a feature race. A track owner would offer a couple hundred bucks to the winner, and this prize would attract better drivers and big crowds. These young drivers would stay in motel rooms, sometimes four or five guys per room, work as their own mechanics, and live off the occasional $100 grand prize. They were all just trying to earn some money and impress a team owner so they could get to Indy. I mean, this is pretty common in the day. I knew a guy named uh, Mike Savelli, who was a big-time sprint guy back in the day. And, I mean, to this day, no, not sprint car. Uh, You know, um, this guy, Mike Savelli, he's a big-time, like, drag racer, kind of different. But like this was a super common lifestyle back then. You're just like a traveling, like like a bard in a way of a bard of racing, going from I mean, city to city yeah. all over the country, never really having a home. You know, staying with 
with any team owner house you could like you know it's just like it's really like being in an independent band and like touring we've covered a number of guys that are like this like smoky eunuch had a similar story yeah you don't have a lot of factory backing or like big sponsorship money so you're just kind of yeah like, i mean back then man you were just really doing racing for the love of it there was besides like getting your grand prize that, that it's not like that was going to your savings account for your retirement no, like that was just so you could have beer. gas money you get beer and gas for your next race you know yeah, that was like, that was kind of it please tip the traveling band please tip the <laughs> yeah. traveling racer yeah like just literally staying at people's houses because all you had was your truck and your trailer you know and you don't even need food beer has enough calories to sustain you <laughs> yeah anyway not only was the lifestyle of racing more rough and tumble the sport as a whole was more dangerous, with a lot fewer rules and regulations. By the 1950s, there was a concerning trend that was right there for anyone to notice. The technology and the speeds of the cars was outpacing the matching rules and safety practices. The sport was getting so dangerous that in 1955, Formula One world champion Alberto Ascari, who we mentioned in our very first uh, Ferrari episode, Vukovic actually died while racing at Indy in 1955 when his car somersaulted through the air and burst into flames. Two weeks later, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, a racer crashed into the grandstands, killing the driver and three onlookers. Finally, when two more Indy drivers died later that year, there was a backlash. Wasn't there also that like uh, Formula One crash at Le Mans? Or it wasn't Formula One. It was, it was a Le Mans crash. I believe it killed like 55 people. Yeah, 80 people um, were injured. Something like that, yeah, because uh, Mercedes, I think a Mercedes and a Jaguar got into it. Yeah, someone was coming like, out of the pits and like took a cut across the track for some reason. It was a whole mess, yeah. Uh, we, we also mentioned that in our uh, Ferrari series at the, from the very beginning of the show. Anyway, the death rate got so bad that the American Automobile Association, which had been supporting auto racing since 1904, said that they would no longer sanction motorsport. This led to General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, and American Motors, all AAA members, this is different than the Auto Club, uh, to pull their support from auto racing. Countries such as France, Germany, Spain, and Switzerland banned racing altogether until new safety measures and rules could be put into place. Mercedes and Jaguar both withdrew from the sport. All of this had almost no effect on the popularity of motorsport. Fans kept coming to races, and drivers kept racing. Not despite of the danger, but because of it. And the car companies eventually gave up on trying to pull their support. By 1964, there were dozens of rising stars. All of them had started at those bullring races, all ready to prove their worth. So why was 1964 a boiling point for Indy? Well, there were a few different factors. A big change in 1964 was the design of the Indy cars. The technology was improving rapidly. The old Roadster design was out, and the new mid-engine car was in. What is surprising was how quickly it all changed. Between 1953 and 1963, there hadn't been much change to the design or engineering of the cars racing in Indy. In fact, during that entire decade, of the 330 cars that qualified for Indy, only 21 were powered by something other than the traditional Offenhauser or Offy engine. I follow Offenhauser on Instagram. Oh, they're still around? It's a great account. Yeah, really fun. Yeah, I mean, Offenhauser, they were also super big. Uh, You could think of them as like the American, like Cosworth in a way. Oh, Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, 
of those 21 cars that weren't traditional Offenhauser engines, eight were supercharged versions <laughs> of the traditional Offenhauser engine. Ten were supercharged Novi engines. Two were supercharged Cummings diesels. And one was a Ferrari. That's crazy that a couple diesel engines were in there. Yeah, right? What's strange to look back on is that this loyalty to the Offy was not because of the rules of Indy. In fact, the rules and regulations of the sport were very lax. There was no weight limit, no horsepower limit, no rules on the type or amount of fuel a car could carry, but there had been very little development or advancement of the cars at Indy since it restarted after World War II. A big part of this may have been the lack of materials and resources after the end of the devastating war. But by the end of the 50s, a things was starting to change. <laughs> Cue uh, that Credence song. Burning. It ain't me. Yeah. Helicopter noise. By the early 60s, mid-engine designs were gaining in popularity. Most of this innovation came from Europe. It all started with the Englishman John Cooper. Cooper started building small mid-engine machines in the late 1940s, and in 1957, he started bringing them to F1 races. The Australian driver Jack Brabham was the first to drive a mid-engine Cooper-built machine in the F1 post-war era. F1 post-war era sounds like a like sick, like... Midwest just, emo band. Yeah. I was thinking, like, just a bass player and a drummer. <laughs> and, like, yeah. like, like kind of like... Uh, like new soul, <laughs> like kind of like, like death Black from Keys, above, kind of like yeah, like death from above. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're called F one post war era. We're the post war <laughs> kids. Yeah. <laughs> it turned out to be a great decision on Bradman's part. He went on to win five consecutive GP races in 1960, driving Cooper's mid engine car. After the season ended, Brabham who was friends with Indy driver Roger Ward, arranged a practice run at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. After the practice run, Ward agreed to let Brabham race his mid-engine Cooper car in the 1961 Indy 500. That's like Lewis Hamilton going to like Indy and being like, yeah, mate, why don't you, okay, cool. Why don't you just take a couple laps on her? Oh, you like it? Yeah, go ahead and race it in Indy 500. Wait, why is Lewis Hamilton Australian? <laughs> he's not. <laughs> he's not. He's just. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds yeah. pretty good. That. Mate. Oh, yeah. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, mate. Why don't you take my car? You sound like Taika Waititi. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Lewis Hamilton sounds like. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He sound... Yeah, he does. Nah, nah. He sound... no, he's like cool. He's like very laid back, like very nice. Oh, yeah. He's like. I think he talks. He does have like a high pitched voice, though. You got a little bit of nasal. Yeah, it's a little nasal. It's like, hey, oh, cool. So, you like the car? You know, we're gonna get a million comments that are like, oh, James, James just does reads these scripts so he can do an English accent. Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, why do you think we do a podcast? Uh, but I earn it. Yeah, I might. <laughs> or, or I'm Lewis <laughs> King Hamilton, and I brought my 
Mercedes here to Indianapolis, Indiana. <laughs> Why don't you take a couple laps around this here course? Yeah, that's Lewis oh, Bricktop Hamilton. You like it? <laughs> Well, why don't you drive it in the next NASCAR race, my little piggy? Everything he's saying is really nice, but he says it really aggressively. Mm -hmm. The mid-engine Cooper design wasn't a perfect Cinderella story. Brabham placed ninth and ultimately decided not to come back to the Indy in 1962. But the changes had been set in motion, and the mid-engine car was there to stay. With Cooper and Brabham heading back to F1 in Europe, it left then newcomer Mickey Thompson. Nice. Ooh, we know him. I know. To take up the mantle of the mid-engine car. By the time entries for the 64 Indy 500 closed, nearly half of the cars were mid-engine. MT. Again, this is so like weird. Like it's a guy brought his F1 car over. From Europe, and remember, there's no internet now, so everyone's just like, "Oh, that looks pretty cool!" <laughs> like, "Oh, you put it in the back." Oh yeah, Dang, it makes dude, sense. That, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you yeah, don't we'll get just... like all smoky face and stuff. <laughs> no, dude, there's no flames on your face or nothing. And then that is just like, "Well, all right, mate, we gotta go back to England. We're gonna do <laughs> F1. Uh, Mickey, you want to keep this F1 car?" <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. There are a couple other factors beyond car design in the danger of the Indy 500. Tires and fuel, for one. For years, what everyone used at the Indy 500 was a fuel combo of alcohol, methanol, or ethyl combined with nitromethane because it added performance. So basically, the cars were running on a methane-alcohol-fuel blend uh, <laughs> You know, and that- Alco- alcohol and meth sounds like my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> Joe knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, we did a lot of pop back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's start a business. <laughs> Let's go to Vanguard. <laughs> People were starting to experiment with the gasoline, which had better fuel economy. This caused some tension, and there was some debate over which was better. Lewis Meyer, the co-owner of Offenhauser, whose engines were designed to run on racing fuel and not gasoline, said that gasoline was too dangerous to use in a high-speed oval race like the Indy 500. But many other people pointed out that the race fuel was just as dangerous because alcohol fires were hard to see and almost invisible when they happened. Yeah, there's those like old race films of the guys just like, ah, and you don't know what's going on because you can't see anything. Yeah, you're like, are you on fire or do yeah. you have ants? <laughs> because like ants were also a huge problem back then but like nolan like you used to race uh like junior dragsters and you guys used methanol yeah and we did weren't and you saying that like that's like just a huge fear as a child to yeah like that was burn. like one of the first things my dad told me was like now look son this thing runs on <laughs> methanol so uh methanol you can't see the flames so i'm like 10 years old like i'm sorry what yeah. Uh, so what am I supposed to do? <laughs> how am I supposed? How am I supposed to 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 face that? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like you know, it's pretty much like baseball, except there's invisible flame. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, we're gonna stra- you're gonna put on you're gonna have to put on a helmet, some fire resistant clothing. You're gonna be strapped yeah. in with seat belts that you've never seen before as a child. Oh yeah, and the fire is invisible. <laughs> the fire is invisible. You're gonna rock it to 200 miles per hour. <laughs> no, I was like, at that at 10 years old, you're going like 50. But uh, 
Yeah, but also like to go 50, it's like, well, why don't we just use not a lawnmower engine and then we don't have to use invisible flame fuel? Yeah, it's pretty fun. Anyway, uh, let's see. the debate of race fuel versus gasoline basically came down to horsepower versus economy. Race fuel gave you tons of power, but gas gave you a lot of laps, a lot of efficiency, and many teams were trying to run the race with only two pit stops. In fact, the Ford team said they might be able to run the whole 500 with no pit stop. That's outrageous. But it also meant that they had to carry between 80 and 90 gallons of gas. Oh, my God. That's just like a rolling bomb. Yeah, to put that into perspective, like the average gas tank is probably 15 to 16 gallons, right? Yeah. My Impreza is like 10. 90 gallons. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) That's like like three pickup trucks. (laughs) there's like a mini cooper waiting for you to move (laughs) you're just like filling your (laughs) yeah (laughs) sorry be a few more minutes (laughs) big tank sorry (laughs) Uh, i forgot my slim gyms i gotta run in real quick (laughs) (laughs) well into this debate stepped our man mickey thompson he was known as the king of pop for the fuel blends that he created before <laughs> before Elvis, mind you. King of Pop is Michael Jackson. Yes, Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Elvis, yes. <laughs> but Thompson was also starting to work on his mid-engine cars, which offered less space for fuel storage. So what did Thompson do? Well, he started hanging a large, hard rubber bladder on the inside of the rails of his cars. So like he had fuel bladder reservoirs. Exoskeleton? Well, this was like in, in the frame rails of the car. Oh, okay. So like lower center center of gravity, all that weight was just... He didn't have a huge gas tank, so he just filled the whole car with gas. <laughs> <laughs> like what are the, like, what, how does that affect handling? Like just having a ton of liquid. Well, you're slower, but you have more uh, weight on the tires, so you have more grip. And at the end of your run with less less weight in the car, you know, you're probably going to have a harder time putting the power down because now your tires have less grip, both mechanically and with weight, less weight on them. So, but also, especially, especially on a oval track, like, aren't you being pulled to the outside of the track? Like, I mean, you can feel this when you do like iRacing, for example, like you, like this is still factored in, you know, the beginning of your run, you're fat and slow, but you have reliable grip and by the end of your run you're you're sliding and uh but you're light you know yeah look i've played i racing i know exactly what these guys have gone through we'll get back to more past gas but right now a word from our sponsors angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home It can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. 
answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another debate taking place was with the tires used at the Indy 500. For years and years, everyone had used Firestone. Since the beginning, in fact. And there had been little development in tires. But in 1963, Firestone made Mickey Thompson specialty 12-inch tires for his mid-engine cars. And in 1964, Thompson's racers were specifically designed to run on 12-inch tires. But before 1964, the USAC mandated a 15-inch minimum tire height, making Thompson scramble to rework his cars just months before the race. And this eventually led Thompson to design his own tire. They're still around today. Yes, sir. So Thompson was being extremely innovative, but also reckless with safety. His cars now had quickly designed custom tires, field bladders hanging on the inside frame rails of the car, making his cars an accident waiting to happen. They were also full of porcupines, and they <laughs> yeah. had uh, broken, gla- broken mirrors on them and upside-down horseshoes. <laughs> of course, if you listen to Pascast regularly, you already know about Nikki Thompson. If not, go back and listen to our episode on Nikki Thompson. <laughs> Mickey was an Irish guy with a lot of bravado and a competitive streak. He loved tinkering with cars and was known by the nickname... <laughs> the backyard mechanic, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which seems a little underwhelming for someone of yeah. that stature. Yeah, like, that's almost an insult. It's like, no, guys, I'm not a backyard. Me- I'm like a, I'm a world renowned championship. And his nickname, racing. the hobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the the bathroom Madonna. <laughs> in in 1961, he went to his first indie. This is where he saw Brabham race the mid-engine car. The next year, he came back with his own car in the race, an evolution of the car raced by Brabham and developed with former Cooper engineer John Crosswaite. <laughs> it also featured a unique independent rear suspension and a V8 Buick engine. Thompson received 59 of 67 votes in winning the annual Mechanic Achievement Award, a huge accomplishment for a first timer, especially with the nickname the backyard mechanic. It's like, guys, I won like in a landslide, the mechanical <laughs> I- achievement award. Yeah, people voted. I competed for me. with everybody. It's like, okay, yeah, but you did it in your backyard, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, right. No, it's, I did it in your backyard. In a, in a clean room lab. <laughs> so suffice to say, Thompson had a knack for innovating cars for racing. After that, Mickey went back to Long Beach, California and started working on his all-new car for Indianapolis in 1963. That year, he had three new cars in the race, in addition to two of his cars from the year before. That's five. (laughs) But Thompson had difficulty keeping drivers employed because his cars were hard to handle. All that innovation meant Thompson sometimes took chances and cut corners, but he kept innovating. He was obsessed with aerodynamics and streamlining, which were new ideas in the 60s. 
He kept tinkering with his designs, and for the 1964 Indianapolis 500, he finally had drivers. His old friend Graham Hill and newcomer Dave McDonald test drove Thompson's new design in March before the 64 race. Hill found the new design diabolical and would not <laughs> return to Indy to drive Thompson's car. But McDonald was like, I like diabolical. Mm, I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, 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 but McDonald was like, do, 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 do. I'm loving it. You know what I really like about this car is the sloshing. Every time I take a turn, <laughs> it feels like the whole car just sloshes around on these tiny tires. <laughs> you know, you like you drive a lot of cars and you're like, man, I wish this thing sloshed more. <laughs> but I like this car sloshes. It's like being in one of those joke mugs that has like liquid inside the rim of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's like one of those pens that you turn upside down and, <laughs> yeah. and the lady's clothes come off, but it's a car. And it's a death trap also. <laughs> I like death and traps. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> I'm Dave McDonald. Dave McDonald is the love child of uh, Dave Wendy's and Ronald <laughs> <Yeah>. McDonald. <laughs> So, Thompson had been tinkering with the mid-engine cars and the aerodynamics, but one of the only drivers willing to take a chance on Thompson's designs in the 64 Indy was Dave McDonald. What was it about Dave McDonald that made him such a confident driver? And how did Thompson find his first-time Indy driver from SoCal? Oh, dude, they were in line at Wahoo's Fish Taco, and they both ordered the same Tostada Bowl. (laughs) Dave McDonald was a shy, timid guy from Southern California. (laughs) <laughs> he loved cars and racing and by the late 50s mcdonald was a top local drag racer awesome he drove a series of corvettes and held almost every class and strip record in the southwest damn this guy's sick your, you un- your grandpa probably knew him right i, I mean probably yeah i probably i'm probably like two degrees removed from this guy and if he yeah. didn't win a race oh, weird i'm i'm looking at a picture of dave mcdonald he looks Way more like Nolan than <laughs> Nolan's dad or grandpa. Whoa, that's crazy. And he and actually his order at Wahoo's was the same thing that Nolan always oh, orders wow. at Nolan, Wahoo's. You you always order this Baja Tostada. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, if he didn't win, uh his wife Sherry would. Oh, so cool. That's cool. A little couple action there. That's awesome. Sometimes he would yeah. drive through the elimination round, and then his wife, Sherry, would drive in the finals. Dude, that's Whoa. that's sick, dude. Dude, I'm looking that's at a sick. picture of Sherry, and she looks a lot more like Nolan than Nolan's grandma. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, not only was McDonald a great driver, he was also a gifted mechanic, and he would do car repairs and tune-ups on the side to help pay for his racing. He especially loved Corvettes. One story claims that McDonald once listened to a customer's Corvette over the phone and successfully diagnosed <laughs> the issue. That's sick. That's this guy's cool. awesome. I love this guy. McDonald's success at the drag strip attracted the attention of Don Steve's Chevrolet, a dealership with a history of racing involvement. Steve's, you don't really hear that anymore. There's not like many dealerships outside of like exotics that have race teams. Uh, Steve's offered him a job as a driver and mechanic for the 1960 season. And McDonald accepted. As soon as he started racing, it was clear that the man had a gift. 
1961 at Riverside Drag Strip, he set a new class record. He went on to win nine straight road races to open the season. This guy is just multifaceted, a real, a real Swiss Army knife behind the wheel. All the success started to make McDonald a fan favorite on the West Coast. The, the best coast, dude. Uh, fans, <laughs> uh, fans loved his aggressive driving style, and since he had no real training, McDonald drove mostly on feel and intuition. He also loved oversteer, which appropriately earned him the nickname the master of oversteer. <laughs> Not super. Uh, Say, there goes the master of oversteer and his mas- <laughs> mastery oh. of oversteer. Look at the master of oversteer is talking with the backyard mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to most fans, he went by another nickname, the natural. Oh, uh, that's way better. That's way cooler. Way McDonald, cool. Yeah. McDonald was super aggressive on the track. You know, sometimes he would start at the back and win just to give fans a show. Starting from the back, baby. That's cool. This over the top. Dude, dr- I don't, come on. <laughs> He's like, no, no way. It's like, I know I qualified uh, P1, but, uh, I'm going to go to the back just to give the people a show. And he winks at the fans as he's like reversing. <laughs> yeah. Like if he is, he needs to go do a harder sport. <laughs> this over-the-top driver persona didn't match his real life. As usually after winning a race, McDonald was a quiet guy who liked to sit in the corner of the party and listen to other people talk. You know what? I relate to this guy. Because yeah. he's your grandpa. He's your real grandpa. Oh, yeah, oh. he's like 100%. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, in 1963, <laughs> Carol Shelby hired McDonald to drive for him. In his second race, driving a Cobra, McDonald won. And it didn't stop there. He won eight of his 12 races driving for Shelby. God, how have I never heard of this guy? After racing for Shelby, McDonald was approached by Mickey Thompson, who needed another drive for his cars. He'd entered into the 64 Indianapolis 500. This was a huge deal for McDonald. As a self-taught young guy, master of oversteer he was, this would be his first indie after driving professionally for only a few years. He taught himself how to be a young guy. <laughs> yeah, he was a self-taught young man. Uh, before McDonald agreed, he asked the opinion of his crew chief, Pete, who had some foreboding words. Pete, spelled P-A-A-T, warned McDonald, quote, Uh, Think very seriously before driving that car. (laughs) He didn't think Thompson had put enough development into the car. McDonald also asked his current car owner, Shelby, for his opinion. Shelby also told McDonald not to do it. In a slightly more blunt quote, Shelby said, I begged Davey not to and fool with that pile of shit Mickey Thompson built. Nothing added up. Mickey was very smart. But there were too many innovations in it. I said, Davey, please don't drive that car. Please don't get in it. Let's just take a breath, go eat some chili, and have some fun. <laughs> and he was like, yo, I'm going to drive this car. I was like, okay, well, you want some chili? And he was like, okay. And so he ate some chili, but in the end, he ended up driving the car. We actually added an extra bladder inside the car just to hold chili. <laughs> chili bladder. That's bladder. actually... That chili bladder. That's how the um, the camel pack was invented. It was so that uh, Shelby. Yeah. I need some way to warm my shoulders and my back, but also eat chili. <laughs> yeah, so Shelby team drivers could eat chili while they raced. Keep, keep giving energy. So after all that, after all the deliberation and the chili uh, camelback innovation, uh, McDonald agreed to race for Mickey Thompson at the 1964. 
500. The 1964 Indianapolis 500 wasn't just a big deal for Thompson and McDonald. There was another driver ready to compete who had a lot on the line. Someone who had been driving at Indy for years. A guy named Eddie Sachs. Sachs couldn't have been more different than McDonald in both personality and driving style. I've had enough like health problems that I would not be like even like as a child I wouldn't have been able to survive in this era but I do wish I could go to the parties. Yeah. Like race car parties in like the 60s. So sick just like Mickey Thompson, Carol Shelby. Like they would dude guys they would think we were so funny. And it's uh, it's always <laughs> at a place like called the starting line in Riverside. <laughs> yeah. The ch- the checker stop in yeah. Irvine. <laughs> yeah. Like we would be like we'd probably have like a radio show and like uh, a like vaudeville sort of like USO tour <laughs> and do like a Christmas special on CBS every year. Yeah. Like, ah, it's the guys from Donut Media. Hey, guys, Donut Media. And he's like, hey, hey, uh, Pumphrey, do your fucking, uh, do your one bit. Like we have to put out a video basically every day. But if we lived back then, we'd have to make four jokes a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we just they'd be like, hey, say that one joke from two years ago. I'd be like, okay, guys. Hey, what's the difference between what's the difference between a car and a car without a roof? <laughs> oh, classic. Eddie Sachs was an over-the-top charismatic guy, a college dropout just like Kanye West. Sachs started racing cars at 19, but for all of this love of cars, Sachs was not a very good driver. He got his start with midget and sprint car circuits and oftentimes crashed before he even qualified for a race. Eddie was known as much for his personality as his driving. He was a rowdy, wisecracking womanizer who was reckless on and off the track. He was a fan favorite, but his attitude often pissed off fellow drivers. But Sachs loved racing and would do anything to stay in the game. This guy either rules or sucks. Yeah. No in between. <laughs> he sacks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. During the offseason, he worked odd jobs. He was a bellhop in Miami, a cab driver in Los Angeles, and even ran a nightclub. Whatever his side jobs were, he kept coming back to racing. And by 1952, he won his first event. Throughout it all, Eddie's goal was always the Indy 500. He first tried out for Indy in 1953, but failed his rookie test. By 1956, he passed that test, but didn't qualify to drive in the race until 1957. Finally, by the 60s, Sachs had proven his worth and was becoming a sought-after driver. Al Dean, owner of Dan Van Lines. <laughs> what? Dan Van Lines. One of the elite indie teams was interested in Eddie, but Dean's chief mechanic didn't like Eddie, saying he was loud, almost boastful. His all-consuming interest was selling Eddie Sachs. But Dean hired Sachs. <laughs> I don't like him, but... I have a lot of other choices, so I'm going to hire him anyways. <laughs> Once he was on the team, Sachs was constantly running his mouth and got into fights with fellow drivers, Roger Ward, Jim Rathman, and Parnelli Jones. Parnelli he, Jones. Parnelli. You only my kid, Parnelli. Parnelli Pumphrey. No, Parnelli's a great name. Parnelli Weber? No. <laughs> Par- Parnelli Sykes? I think so. I think that's the move. Yeah, that's a good. One. I'm gonna name my kid Jethro. Nor- Nolan, you should name your kid Soren. Soren uh, Sykes. No. No. <laughs> no. I mean, you should name your kid Bikeson. 
Bison sights. Bison? <laughs> <No. Yeah. laughs> I'm not doing any of those like new agey LA kid yeah. names, okay? What are you going to name your kid then? Space Captain. Uh, Humphrey James Sykes. The year before at Indianapolis in 1963, Sachs had lost control of his car and spun out. He partially blamed oil that had been spilled on the track, causing his tires to start sliding. At the victory luncheon after the race, Sachs spent the entire time heckling Parnelli Jones. Sachs was such a jerk during luncheon that Jones didn't even want to talk to him when Sachs came up to him at the bar uh, after the lunch. Jones said that Sachs was lying to reporters, saying that it was Jones who spilled oil that made Sachs lose the race. Sachs then called Jones a liar. Jones responded with, call me a liar again, and I will bust right in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh no! You said miss the you part. <laughs> that's an actual quote. <laughs> call, call me a liar again, and I'll bust you right in the mouth. <laughs> to this, Sax responded, "You're the liar." <laughs> and, and as promised, Jones punched Sax in the mouth, and they wrestled on the ground uh, until separated. That is like fights are so embarrassing. Yeah. It's just like you have this like idea that you're gonna like do like some like transporter type, yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah. But then like it's like, hey, you want to like stretch out your shirt and get your face real red, and, like maybe like skin your elbow. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I want to do. Do you want to both uh, <laughs> both lose lose our dignity at the same time? Yeah. You, you want to like remind yourself that you don't exercise at all. <laughs> yeah it's like two punches before you're winded yeah <laughs> <It's> like <sighs> it's it's pretty amazing that this interaction is so well documented like who is writing down oh jones says you're a liar and then sack says you're a liar <laughs> well it's not exactly like mind-bending dialogue so yeah but it's also like the 60s after the indianapolis 500 so like everyone's wearing like turtlenecks and sport coats and Smoking cigarettes with like long extensions and drinking like there's mm-hmm. like, journalists Hunter all around. Hunter S. Thompson's them. there. Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson's like, and then uh, Penelope Jones said uh, to Sachs that uh, you're the liar. And, and uh, <laughs> after the fight, Sachs's wife Nance worked fast, taking some of her mascara to blacken his eye for photos. Damn, Nance, you a down ass Uh then she put a miniature black flag in his mouth, telling reporters, quote, his mouth has been black flagged. That was Eddie Sachs and his wife. <laughs> the fans loved him, calling him the clown prince of racing. Eddie was convinced 1964 was going to be his year. He even told Nance that as soon as he won the Indy 500, he's going to retire from racing. It wasn't worth the risk. Dude, Nance's... Yeah. Where did she find a little tiny black flag? She had it on her just in case, bro. (laughs) My guy's going to get in a fight and I'm going to use this. (laughs) He runs his mouth. I can't wait till he gets in a fight so I can tell him he's being black flagged. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. So we have the history, the innovations, and the drivers. We got all the background. What actually happened on that day in 1964? How did the race go down? As always, the race started with 
Gentlemen, start your engines. <laughs> As the green flag waved, the race got off to a clean start with Jimmy Clark, Parnelli Jones, and A.J. Foyt in front. In the third row was Lloyd Ruby, Len Sutton, and Don Branson. Behind in the fourth row was rookie Walt Hensgen and Jim Herterbees. Drivers fighting for position were now running three and four wide as they approached the first turn. Two other rookies start up front, McDonald and Rooney Duman, who both moved to the bottom of the track. Sachs followed Herterbees to the outside, moving in front of Johnny Rutherford. Sachs and Rutherford carried their momentum into the first turn, moving past Duman and McDonald. So Sachs and Rutherford, are, are they got speed. They got a good run coming out of the first turn, moving past Duman and McDonald. And clinging into the inside of the track was one Bobby Unser. Drivers Marsham and Ward passed Jones on the back straight away. And by the second lap, Gurney was passed Jones and Foyt. Uh, McDonald passed Sachs and Rutherford uh, on the low side between the first and second turns as they started lap number two. Rutherford said later that when he saw McDonald, he thought to himself, whoa, he's either going to win this thing or crash. McDonald was soaring. Maybe it was the combination of the slow start, crowded lines of cars in front of him, how well his Thompson car was handling with a full load of fuel, or maybe it was pure adrenaline. But McDonald was going big and driving aggressively as he was known to do. Like he's uh, leasing a car from Rusnik. Well, also, I mean, this, this car... Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> that kind pretty of, that, funny. Uh, that, that got me. That got me. No one thinks it's pretty funny, Joe. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> Joe's one of my favorite comedians, okay? I don't, you know, I don't have to... <laughs> Thanks, dude. Uh, McDonald was behind drivers Franson, Sutton, and Rothman. He passed all three of them before the fourth turn and moved into 10th place. So he's climbing up through the field. As Jim Clark approached the first turn, McDonald exited the fourth and was closing in fast on Hansgen, who in turn was closing fast on Herturbis. That's the weirdest name ever. It's very weird. Herturbis. Herturbis. <laughs> McDonald started edging his car to the left to pass Hansgen as they moved down the front straight, okay? So he's going to the inside. A split second later, Hansgen made the same move on her turbies, forcing McDonald to veer left again, so he has to go even further inside. Then it happened. McDonald lost control of the red Thompson. His car turned a full 180 degrees and went sliding backwards towards the inside wall. He had the front wheels turned in full opposite lock and the brakes jammed in an attempt to slow his car down. At the last second, he turned and hit the wall. The rubber bladder holding the car's gasoline was on the left side of the car, and even though the impact was on the right side of the car, the force of the crash tore the neck off the bladder from the refueling cap, shooting a stream of gasoline across the car and onto the hot exhaust pipes. The gas ignited, immersing the car in flames. McDonald's car hit the inside wall and bounced off of it, sending him back into oncoming traffic, completely engulfed in flames. The strength of the impact threw his car to the left another 180 degrees, and the nose of the car was headed towards the outside wall this time. The right rear suspension was destroyed on the initial impact and dug into the track, pivoting McDonald's car yet again 
the jerking movement spilling more gasoline onto the fire. McDonald was sliding back across the track, pulling a screen of orange flames and dense black smoke behind him. Behind McDonald were the three drivers he had just passed, Branson, Sutton, and Rothman. All three drivers didn't hesitate. They stayed in the natural high groove coming out of the fourth turn, and running flat out, they made it past the sliding and burning car. That's they were terrifying. Yeah, that's insane. They were lucky enough to make it past, but not so lucky was Eddie Sachs. Coming onto the front stretch and closing fast was Sachs, followed at two car lengths by Rutherford and Dumont, running nose to tail. Unser was another car length back. As they came up on the fourth turn, they all saw a cloud of dust, and then they saw McDonald's car explode. All four drivers could see his burning car sliding back across the track. The whole circuit now was blocked with fire. All four drivers knew they couldn't stop. They had to drive through the flames. Sachs tried to find a break in the fire to make it through. He veered left and turned directly into the left side of McDonald's car. The left side, coincidentally, where the gasoline bladder was still intact. The collision punctured the Thompson's side. The collision punctured the Thompson's gas bladder and the front gas tank on Sachs' shrike touching off a second explosion of flames even greater than the first. Rutherford, Dumont, and Unser were right behind them. Sachs hit McDonald with such force that it lifted the rear of the Shrike completely off the ground. Rutherford, seeing this, jerked his steering wheel to the right in a desperate attempt to avoid Sachs and reached the narrow gap between McDonald and the wall, but he caught the right rear tire of Sachs' car, forcing Rutherford under the rear wheels before launching up and over McDonald's sideways racer. Dude, this is just like a description of a nightmare. Yeah. Like all of this is like the whole time McDonald is on fire. Like this, this man is burning. All these dudes are coming up on this like huge fire and then just like, and like now they're part of like just, yeah. I mean, this is why we have regulations in racing. Yeah. Rutherford thought he was a goner. Then he burst free of the conflagration, his car on fire, but still moving. Dumont swung left, and Unser's car hit him from behind, shoving Dumont into the flaming cars of Sachs and McDonald. Unser slammed into the rear of Dumont's car, pushing into the pyre, and then through the flames. Dumont bounced off the inside wall, clipped the rear of Unser's passing car, and slammed back tight against the wall. His car went rolling backwards towards the pit entrance. Holy crap, man. This is just a chain reaction of misery. Dumont got free of the crash only to see his car on fire. And his car was running on a fuel blend like the other offies, so the flames were almost invisible. Oh, man. Dumont managed to get free of his car. He jumped over the short inside track wall and started rolling in the grass, trying to uh, put out the flames on his uniform. The safety patrol managed to get to him and sprayed him with an entire fire extinguisher and pulled him further from his now fully engulfed car. Unser thought he was free of the crash, but Dumont's car had hit him on the left rear suspension and turned his car back into Rutherford's. Rutherford's car was covered in pools of gasoline, and as he tried to pick up speed and get away from the crash, Unser's car slammed into his. Rutherford's car was airborne, going up and over the nose of Unser's car and back into the outside wall, but he finally managed to get into first gear and pull away after all that. Wow. That's amazing. Just to have the wherewithal to like stay in it and stay like, you know, not be phased. For sure. It's crazy. Insane, dude. 
But now, Unser was trailing wreckage and his car was all torn up and missing a wheel. Unser's car rolled across the track towards the entrance to pit road. Unser climbed out of the car and managed to walk towards the pit. He was amazingly, mostly uninjured, but had suffered just a few, a few burns on his neck. Rutherford's fuel tank mounted underneath the tail of his car had been hit in the collision and was ruptured and he was losing fuel. He drove his car past the pit lane that was clogged with people, so he kept on driving up the track. He wanted to keep moving so the flames on his car would either blow out or burn out. Very smart. At the flag stand, the race was ordered to stop. Only twice at Indy had a race been stopped, in 1926 and 1950 because of rain. Most drivers on the track had already stopped to avoid the flames. It was devastating, and everyone watching couldn't believe what they had just seen. The Indy 500 had stopped. Many drivers were injured, but Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald had both lost their lives. Sachs died in his car, and McDonald died at the hospital the next day. It was a huge loss for racing. Two drivers who couldn't have been more different. The race eventually started back up, and even though many of the racers were shaken up, every single one of them returned to their car to finish the race. With A.J. Foyt winning in the end, but it was a hollow victory. This was the year that Indy had stopped, and people wouldn't forget that anytime soon. In the few weeks after the race, there was a lot of blame thrown around. A.J. Foyt blamed the gasoline in the mid-engine car. Many others placed the blame solely on Thompson and his reckless, not thought-through car designs. In the press, there were calls to end the 500. The Chicago Tribune printed an editorial calling to end the Indy 500. A local CBS news anchor called for the end of the race. And the Washington Post sports editor said, There is a new revulsion towards the speed carnival. The deaths and injuries will be listed as accidental, but the trappings for accident are built into the whole senseless spectacle. The negative press was plentiful, much of it aimed at Mickey Thompson. Car and Driver magazine said, Hopefully we have seen the last of Mickey Thompson at Indianapolis. To combat all the backlash and bad press, the USAC had a hearing where many people pointed fingers at Mickey Thompson. But after the dust settled and the blame was thrown in every direction, it was clear racing was too popular of a sport. The fans loved the Indy 500 and it wasn't going anywhere. But after 1964, the USAC did put in some more rules and regulations. It now required all fuel tanks to be made of metal with rubber bladder inserts and with minimum thickness requirements. No fuel tanks could be placed in front of a driver. Pressurized refueling was also banned. For the first time, a minimum vehicle weight of 1,250 pounds was set, and there were now required pit stops. And in 1965, the Indy 500 was back, with fans lining up to watch the race and drivers putting it all on the line to win. But the tragedy of 1964 wasn't for nothing. With all the innovation, there needed to be new regulations. And this blend of new technology now combined with new safety regulations cleared the way for another golden age of racing. Not only that, but for all his arguably dangerous and half-baked designs, Mickey Thompson may have had the last laugh. By 1967, every single car in the Indianapolis 500 was mid-engine. Our source for this episode is a book called Black Noon, if you'd like to learn more. Uh, it's all about this huge tragedy um yeah man i mean to this day like you know indie cars remain uh mid-engined and safety innovations are, are still going on with the the inclusion of the arrow screen for uh, i believe it was last season was the first season maybe or the season before that very recent essentially like a, 
a windscreen, you know, and a, and a sort of halo design that keeps cars from coming in, uh, uh, keeps large objects from entering the cockpit and, and uh, you know, injuring drivers. And there was a I think huge, it looks bad. It looks great. Um, there was actually I mean, a big crash at the latest IndyCar. I can't remember. Uh, I think it was at Texas where the halo definitely uh, saved a lot of drivers from injury. So, you know, yeah. people might complain about safety getting more stringent in racing. And you know who doesn't complain about it? Drivers. Yeah, drivers don't yeah. complain about it. Um, if you're watching racing for the the crashes and the destruction, I think you're kind of in it for the wrong reasons. Um, cause yeah, nobody wants to see a crash. So yeah, safety is good, <laughs> especially when, uh, these guys, you know, these guys are just like some of the coolest figures in our kind of sphere and you want to keep them safe. All right. Well, that concludes this episode of uh, past gas. So thank you very much for listening to past gas. Uh, as always, uh, follow the show if you haven't. If you like this episode, follow the show. It really does help us out. Uh, it, it, no bull really does help us out. So No cap. No cap, dude. It dead uh, helps us out so <laughs> much. Sheeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee